Welcome to the Bethel Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Chris Fallaton. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit ibethel.org. Well, um, I want to talk to you about epic seasons and Kairos moments. And first, I want to just say that um, I believe that we're in a Kairos moment. And I'm going to talk about what Kairos moments are in a minute. But the goal of today is that you would actually realize you're in a Kairos moment and that you would behave accordingly. And I love how we opened this morning when Chris said, it's, uh, it's time to, you should what, raise your hopes? What do you say? Get your hopes up. Get your hopes up. I should have wrote that down. Get your hopes up. So um, I want to just explain to you, like, uh, in, my, in, in my limited understanding, what I think is happening today. When the children of Israel crossed the Jordan River, the Bible says that the manna ceased, that the fire by night was gone, and the cloud by day was gone, and God said, welcome to the promised land. How many know the supernatural food and the supernatural weather was gone, and God went from doing miracles to them to doing miracles through them? When they crossed over the Jordan River, they really did cross over the Jordan River. I'm not saying it's a metaphor, but when they crossed over the Jordan River in the seen heaven, the first heaven, they crossed over into a new epic season in the third heaven, in God's heaven. The word epic I'm speaking of is E-P-O-C-H, not E-P-I-C. E-P-I-C means greater grand, but E-P-O-C-H means a way in which God deals with a certain people in a certain time. Let me say that again. A way in which God deals with a certain people in a certain time. And I'd like to suggest that we've just crossed over the Jordan River, metaphorically speaking. That God is doing things not just to us, but through us, and that it's inspired a new Kairos moment. In Isaiah 42, verse 9, Isaiah says, The former things have come to pass. Whatever it is that you've just been in, I'd like to suggest that you're in a new thing. The former things have come to pass. Behold, I proclaim new things to you. Sing to the Lord a new song. Christine Kane was with us, I don't know, maybe less than a year ago. And she, in first service, she opened her message by saying, God is doing a new thing. He's not doing the next thing. You know when someone shares a phrase with you that has been like percolating in you, but you couldn't put words to it? I have all this stuff that's been going on in me for like five years. And when she said, God's not doing the next thing, God's doing the new thing. I didn't hear the rest of the message in first service. Thankfully, I stayed till second because I'm a Christian. <laughs> but I started realizing like if God's doing the next thing, then the last thing God did is relevant to the season I'm in. But if God's doing a new thing, how many understand? I don't know where I'm going, but I know where I can't stay. <laughs> and I end up on this adventure with God, like, the, like Abraham and Sarah leaving the Chaldeans to a place I will show you. <laughs> how many have been on an Abraham and Sarah journey? Like, where are you going? I have no idea. I only know where I can't stay. And you're like, you're like, like Abraham, you're looking for a city who had foundations. The word for foundation, we get our word theme from it. It had a God theme. I'm looking for a life that has a God theme. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus said, John sang the dirge. That's the funeral song. And you didn't mourn. I sang, I played the flute. It's the wedding song. And you didn't dance. He's saying, you weren't congruent with any season. When it was time to mourn, you didn't mourn. When it was time to dance, you didn't dance. And the sons of Issachar were famous in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32. It says that the sons of Issachar understood the times. Times. The word times is the word kairos. 
They understood the times, and they understood what Israel should do in the times. Jesus was talking to the Pharisees and the scribes and Sadducees. They were sad, you see. I know, it's old. In chapter 16 of, of uh, Matthew, and he, and he says this, the scribes and Pharisees came up to Jesus, testing him, and they were asking him to show them a sign from heaven. Listen to this. They were asking him to show them a sign from heaven. His response. But he replied to them, When it's evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, there will be storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but you do not know how to discern the signs of the times? The connotation is they say, Show us a sign. He's saying, there's signs all around you, but you don't know how to discern the times. You don't know what time it is. I love this quote, one of my favorite quotes. Eric Hoffer wrote this. In times of change, learners inherit the earth, while the learned find themselves beautifully prepared for a world that no longer exists. In times of change, learners, how many know, your lifetime learners, Inherit the earth, while the learned find themselves beautifully prepared, but for a world that no longer exists. When we, the first, very first year of school ministry, one of our students named Eric, he had graduated with a PhD in theology. And at the end of the school year, he came to me and he said, you know, the most profound impact the school had on me? I said, what was it? He said, when I went to seminary and got a degree in theology, he said, I learned how to answer questions. Nobody was asking. <laughs> I'm not against seminary, but my point is, it's God, how many know that, it, it, that it's God's current word? Jesus said, man can't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Father. It's not what God said, but what God's saying that gives me life. How many know what God said tells me how God thinks? What God's saying tells me what God's thinking. It's good to know history because that tells me how, God's think, how God thinks. That tells me the nature of God. But if I want to actually have bread that's life to my soul, I have to know what God is currently saying to me in this season, in this hour. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, I love this verse. But when the fullness of time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Let me read it to you again. When the fullness of time came, everybody say, fullness of time came. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. The fullness of time. The word time there is again kairos. I'm going to talk to you about it in just a minute. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, we read it at the opening of the service. In him, speaking of Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. Everybody say amen to that. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished on us. I just love the word lavished. We just don't use it anymore. We should bring it back like awesome. We should, we should just, I know, Kathy's like, you should lavish me. I lavish you, baby. That's how you got two horses. A happy horse is a happy wife, and a happy wife is a happy life. That's in Proverbs 32. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to the kind intention which he purposed in him. Get this. With a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of times. Everybody say suitable, suitable. to the fullness of times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ which are in the heavens and on earth. Now, there's two Greek words for the word time, T-I-M-E. There's two Greek words. The first one 
is the word chronos. We get our word chronology or chronological. In other words, it means a season, a time, something measurable on a linear scale. Are you with me? That's chronos. It's, we, we use it all the time. But then there's another word in the word Greek, and it's the word kairos, where chronos is quantitative, kairos is qualitative. It means a moment, not seconds. It further refers to a right moment, the opportune moment, the perfect moment. So good. I know, it's getting better too. <laughs> now, the Greeks like to personify things in statues, as we well know. And they personified, they personified chronos, I almost said it wrong. They personified Kronos, and you've probably seen him, the old man with a clock behind him. He's, he's looks, he looks like he's got a cane. This is the, the, we call him Father Time. You remember that step? Have you ever seen Father Time statue? This was the Greek idea of Kronos. Kronos is like, you know, life is tough. I'm just moving along. You know, I have no control over it. It just happens to me. And actually, if you if you look at the statue of the great of the of the reaper, the Greek what is it called? <clears throat> I'll get it. I'll get it. Grim Reaper. If you look at the statue of the Grim Reaper and the statue of Kronos, they look almost identical because the Greek idea of Kronos is that time kills you. You're just going to die. Everything just comes and goes. It's you know, case sarah sarah. You have no control over it. Life just happens to you. But when they, but, but on, but on Kairos, the Greeks caught, built a statue of Kairos. They actually put statues all on. In every Greek city, almost every Greek city had a Kairos statue, and it was a statue of a young man who was agile with a with a bow or with a sword. In other words, Kairos is empowering. Kairos is agile. Kairos is happening now. Kairos is a moment in which God decrees that when the, when the divine moment and the divine destiny come into co collision, that's a Kairos moment. <laughs> when divine favor meets divine opportunity. A great example of this Kairos is in uh, 1 Kings chapter 13. I'm going to tell you this story. It's, a, it's, it's, 19, it's 907 B.C., and God has just prophesied that Jeroboam should be king. Now, this is very interesting, and it's a study for another time, but God actually had prophets come and prophesy that Jeroboam would be king, and actually a prophet commissioned him to his kingship. The first thing Jer Jeroboam did when he was king is he set up two golden calves, isn't it interesting that God called him to be king, and yet he did the opposite of God's will? That's a thought. You guys are so quiet. Good point, Chris. Are you making one yet? He sets up two golden calves, and he calls Israel to worship Baal. So about two years into his ruling, God sends an unnamed prophet into the king's chamber, 907 B.C., the unnamed prophet says to him, God's going to tear down these altars. He's going to destroy these prophets. And he says to him, and he's going to raise up a man, a king named Josiah. A king named Josiah will arise from the kingship. And he shall call Israel back to God. That's 907 BC. Now I'm sure that most of us would think, and probably the prophet thought, 
well, that's probably going to be the next king. <laughs> or the king after that will be named Josiah. He'll call Israel back to the kingdom. But the truth is, is that in 1 Kings, I'm sorry, in 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 1, it's 637 B.C. when Josiah becomes king. 637 B.C. You got it? 300 and something years later, Josiah becomes king. And he's eight years old when he becomes king. His grandfather is named Manasseh, the wickedest king in, in Israel's history. And it says of Manasseh that he walked in all the ways of evil and he did evil beyond all the kings before him. He destroyed the Torah and did not allow the reading of the Bible in the entire for 48 years. He turned Israel again back to Baal. And it says of the, of the next king, it says that he did wicked in all the ways of his father Manasseh. And then Josiah is the next king. Now, Manasseh and his father for 50 years walked in evil. And here's how it opens, 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 22. Remember, it's 637 BC. And it says, Josiah was eight years old when he became king. He reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Jediah, daughter of Adoniah, the daughter of Boaz. He did right in the sight of the Lord, and he walked in all the ways, listen to this, of his father David. Nor did he turn to the side, to the right or to the left. Did you notice that his father is not named, only his mother? And his father is named David. How many know King David was already dead for 400 years? What I'm getting at is this, is that when you, when you win a personal victory with God, God lives outside of time. When you win a personal victory with God, your kairos moment transcends time and space so that you're still blessing people 400 years after you're dead other people are, set, are called your son. Everyone else who's faithful after that in your lineage is called the son of David. He's not called the, grand, the grandson of Manasseh or the grandson of his father or son of his father. He's called the great grandson of King David. And by the way, he wasn't even in David's biological family. That's kind of cool. It says that Josiah in 637 BC, he was eight years old when he became king. And it says that when he was 22, he decreed the re remodeling of the temple. Now remember, they haven't seen the Bible in 50 years. There's been no Bible in 50 years. Josiah decrees the remodeling of the temple, which they have not been in the temple for, for 50 years. For a half a century, nobody's worshiped God in Israel. Josiah calls the people back at 22 to go back to worship God. He calls the priests back to the temple. The priests have all have secular jobs. Now they've been called back to the temple. In the midst of the remodeling, which Josiah decreed that the workmen shall come and remodel the, the temple. In the midst of the remodeling of the temple, somebody found a Bible. Now remember, there's been no Bibles for 50 years. I would guess that probably during the days of Manasseh, probably one of the Levitical priests hid a Bible in the walls of the temple. And as they're remodeling the temple, one of the workmen finds a Bible. A scribe, one of the scribes named Shemaiah begins to read the Bible. He comes to David, he says, listen, the workmen are working, uh, just like you asked me to, to make sure that happened, the workmen are remodeling the temple, but Shephiah has found the book. And he begins to read the Bible, which hasn't been read in a half a century to any human being. It said, when Josiah 
heard the words of the book, he began to rip his clothes off. Aren't you glad you don't live in the Old Testament? <laughs> you know, moves of God now are like, you know, manifestations are shaking, falling down, but not very many people rip their clothes off. Thank God. Might have worked when I was younger, but nowadays. It says that Josiah ripped his clothes and then he, made, he begins to make decrees and he calls Israel back to God. He tears down the altars of Baal and the second greatest awakening in the history of Israel happens under Josiah. But what really happened? Well, the first thing we know that happened is a prophet 337 years before makes a decree. There shall be a man. His name will be Josiah. By the way, there is no other Josiah in the Bible. It's not a common name. And suddenly, for 300 years, if you will, the cosmos is pregnant with this prophetic declaration. How many know words become worlds? What I'm getting at is this, that divine decree meets divine opportunity. That's Kairos. God decrees 337 years before, there shall be a man named Josiah. And for some reason, his mama names his king in the kingly line, Josiah, when he has no history of that name at eight years old we don't know much about him but he's the youngest king in in the history of israel why did he become king at eight i believe because it was a kairos moment divine opportunity met divine favor on a man and suddenly he becomes king what else happened they began to read the book now this part is subjective but i think what happened is that shemaiah begins to read the Bible in the presence of the king, and he gets to 1 Kings 13, and he begins to read about a man named Josiah. And he's like, your name is in the book. 300 years ago, your name was mentioned in the book. You're not here by accident. You're not here because it's in your lineage. You're here by a divine Kairos opportunity. And suddenly he realizes that he's not just king, but his but he is a king who's under the divine order of God with a divine purpose to destroy the works of the devil and to release Israel back to the kingdom. I believe we're in a Kairos moment. I don't mean this second, I mean this season. And I think it's going to be marked by three things. I think this Kairos moment will be marked by three things. I would encourage you to take notes. Number one, acceleration. Things that normally take years to happen, happen suddenly. Things that normally take years, happen suddenly. Let me remind you of Nehemiah's walls. You'll probably remember the story in the book of Nehemiah, that Nehemiah is, is he's, he's, in, he's serving Exousius. He's the same king in which Esther and Mordecai serve. He hears that Israel has been restored. He thinks things are well, but one of his brothers comes to him and says, the walls are destroyed. The gates are burning with fire. Nehemiah begins to weep. He begins to call out to God. And God says, go back to Israel. He's the cupbearer to a, a foreign king. And, the Lord, and he goes to the foreign king and says, listen, this is what's happening. And the king says, I commission you to go back and help your people. He goes back and he surveys the walls. By the way, the walls have been torn down for 152 years. For 70 years, the Israelites have tried to rebuild the walls complete, completely with, with no success whatsoever. Nehemiah gets there, 
He begins to pray. God gives him a strategy. You should read Nehemiah, especially chapters one through six. It's a great, it's, it's a great opportunity to look at the strategies of God in a Kairos moment. Nehemiah begins to build a strategy, a God strategy. The enemy begins to, as you know, begin to taunt him and try to scare him as, they've, as he's done for 70 years. But here's the cool thing. Nehemiah rebuilds the walls in 52 days and Nehemiah doesn't know a thing about rebuilding walls, but he knows a lot about Kairos moments. They rebuild walls in 52 days that have been torn down for 152 years and for 70 years they've tried to construct them and in 52 days, Nehemiah rebuilds the walls. I'd like to propose to you that things are gonna happen in your life that, you, that the doctor said, this will take 10 years. You'll have to live with this pain. You've been in poverty for five generations. And I want to propose to you that what you thought you might have to save for. And by the way, I'm into saving. I'm into working hard. Everybody knows me, right? But there's going to be an end suddenly. And what should have taken 70 years, we're going to pay our house off in 30 years. We're going we're gonna to double our, and God goes, how about, how about one month? How about two weeks? How about you get well now? How about your son come back tomorrow? How about your son and daughter turn around tomorrow? How about the next one isn't a miscarriage? I'm saying what's happened over and over, you begin to like just give way to it. That's Kronos, that's the old man. Like life just happens to you. But all of a sudden, something happens. That divine moments touch favorable people. Acceleration, be ready. Listen, this isn't a message of encouragement. This is a prophecy. I need you to take it differently than you would. I, I love encouraging messages. That's not what this is. this is. This is a divine opportunity for you to step into your Kairos moment. Number two, unusual occurrences. Things that never, no, things that never happen occur against ridiculous odds. Things that never happen occur at ridiculous odds. Jonathan's victory is a great example of that. It's in... 1 Samuel chapter 14, verses 6 through 15. It's the story of Jonathan and his armor bearer going up against an enemy army. You'll remember this, that, that for weeks, this, the Israelites have been terrified of the enemy army who totally outnumbers them. And then one morning, Jonathan wakes up and turns to his armor bearer and says, can God save by many, but not by few? I love the armor bearer. He should get the most valuable player award. He says, he didn't get the vision, but he said, whatever is in God's heart, I'm with you. How many know, it's easier when you have the vision, but when the boss has the vision, and it's about you dying, and you're like, whatever's in your heart, I'm with you. And Jonathan says, here's what we're going to do. We're going to go down right here into the valley, and you know our enemy's up there on the hill, and we're going to say to them, hey, hey, we got something to say to you. And if they say, come up to us, we know God's given them to us. But if they say, wait for us, come down, we're getting out of here. They go to the mountain, as you know, and they go, hey, hey. And the enemy goes, hey, come on up here. Jonathan goes, this is it. <laughs> we got them. And here two guys do what couldn't be done by an entire army of Israelites. And they get the army, I think it's the Am Am Amalekites, on a run. And the Israelites wake up in the morning, and they're like, What's all that dust? <laughs> What's all that noise? Hey, who's those two guys? Hey, we should probably help. And how many know, Kairos moments create tipping points in history.
things that don't normally occur happen with ridiculous odds. The third one is this, supernatural interventions. The way things come about has no, makes no earthly sense. I love the story of Gideon in Judges chapter 6. It's one of my favorite stories. The Israelites again are in trouble. They're always in trouble. Reminds me of some friends I know. They go from crisis to crisis and they never find Christ in the crisis. And they're in crisis again. This time it's the Midianites, not the Mennonites though. The Midianites are oppressing the Israelites for years. And an angel of the Lord visits Gideon and he goes, oh mighty man of valor. And here's Gideon's response. Really? Really? If I'm a mighty man of valor, how come we're oppressed? And the angel begins to tell him, because the victory's in you. He says, gather up. The angel says, gather up all the Israelite men. We're going to war. And he gathers them up, as you know, thousands of them. God goes, that's great. You got too many. So God goes, tell everyone who's afraid, go home. <laughs> I think there's like 10,000 left. I'm sure Gideon's like, I, I'm going home. And God goes, you still got too many. Take the men down to the creek and have them drink. And everyone who drinks like a dog can stay. 300 men come back from the creek drinking like dogs. God goes, all right, that'll be about enough. Remember, when everyone, when all the Israelite army was assembled, it says they were outnumbered like 10 times. Now there's, nine, there's 300 men. Then God goes, okay, Gideon, you got only got 300 men. I'm sure he's thinking like, we got the Green Berets here. This is going to be it. We're going to, this special forces. God goes, all right, you got the special forces here. Here's what we're going to do. Get some jars, get some torches, and get some trumpets. Did you notice there's something missing? Weapons. <laughs> and he goes, go up on the mountain. Remember, there's only 300 of them, and there's thousands. It says like the sand of the sea. Their enemy was numbered like the sands of the sea. He goes, all right, go up on the mountain where everyone can see you and light the torches. This isn't exactly like stealth. <laughs> light the torches, and what you're going to do is you're going to blow the trumpets. Okay, so now we're going to light the torches and blow the trumpets. We're definitely not going to like, we're, we're definitely not, <laughs> you, we, you know what I'm saying? We're going to light the torches and we're going to blow the trumpets. Yeah, you're going to light the torches and blow the trumpets and then you're going to break the jars. Um, when does the fighting start? And God goes, uh, if you're afraid, go down and hear what the enemy's saying about you. If you're afraid, go down and see what the enemy's saying about you. How many of you know sometimes you have to go to the enemy's camp to figure out who you are? How many know that all the devils knew who Jesus was, only the religious people didn't know? Gideon takes a friend, sneaks down into the enemy's camp. He's in the bushes listening. And just as he gets there, one of the enemy said, hey, I had a dream last night. And the other guy of the enemy says, what was your dream? He said, I dreamt last night that there was a tumbleweed that came in our camp and it tumbled over all of our tents. And the other guy goes, that's none other than Gideon. God has anointed him to kill us all. <laughs> How many know? Kairos moment. Doesn't make sense. It makes no logical sense. You don't break glass, blow trumpets and light torches to beat an army. But 
They didn't even have to fight in that war. As you'll remember, the enemy turned on themselves. <laughs> 185,000 of them died that day. And Gideon's up there watching with the torches. <laughs> that was a better plan than it sounded like. Let me just, again, highlight them. Number one, acceleration. Things that normally take years happen suddenly. Number two, unusual occurrences. Things that never happen occur against ridiculous odds. Number three, supernatural interventions. The way things come about makes no earthly sense. These are the seasons that you are in right now. You're in a Cairo season. I'm saying, he that has ears, hear. He that has eyes, see. This is where you're at. This is the time it is. What time is it? Sons of Issachar. You're the sons of Issachar. On, not, on November 2nd, 2016, the Chicago Cubs won the World Series. Yeah, go ahead. We can celebrate for a moment. <laughs> Remember, the, the, the Sadducees and Pharisees said, show us a sign. Jesus said, you know how to determine the weather, but you don't see that there's signs all around you? On November 2nd, 2016, the Chicago Cubs won the World Series after 108 years of trying. 108 years. By a score of 8-7 to seven in, the game, in Game 7. They played against the Cleveland Indians, who haven't won a World Series in 68 years. The Cubs came back for a 3-1 deficit to beat the Indians in seven games. Only four teams have ever come back from a 3-1 deficit to win, in the World, to win the World Series. The last time it happened was 31 years ago. Same year, June 19, 2016, Cleveland Cavaliers win the NBA championship in Game 7. The Cavs come back from a 3-1 deficit to defeat the Golden State Warriors, which has never been done in the history of the NBA. No team has ever come back from a 3-1 deficit to win the NBA championship in the history of the NBA. Are you with me yet? Furthermore, the Warriors set the regular season record for the most games won in the season by winning 73 games. In other words, not only has no team ever come back from a 3-1 deficit, but they beat the team that set the record for regular season game wins. Are you following me? Second, third thing, the Warriors' Steph Curry made a record 400 and 401 three-pointers in the same season. Set the record for three-pointers. The previous record before Curry was 167. He shot 401 in one season. Get this, the second runner-up, the second-place three-point shooter, in other words, the person who shot the most three-pointers in the history of the NBA shot 401. The runner-up, the next guy in line, shot 276 three-pointers in the same season that Curry shot 401, and he's on the same team. The guys that took first and second place in three-point shooting shot their... Made, are you with me? Made the record. I'm sorry, got a bunch of stuff going on in my head made the record in the year the Cavs beat them. Never in the history of basketball had the number one and number two shooters, three-point shooters, been on the same team. And the Cavs beat them 3-1. No, the Cavs were down 3-1 and beat them in seven games. Think about the impossible odds 
that they could ever, first of all, beat them in the first place. Secondly, be down three games to one. I'm saying unusual occurrences. And by the way, I'm not saying which team I want to win. I love the Warriors. I don't watch baseball. So whoever wins, wins. On February 5th, 2017, the New England Patriots won the Super Bowl, beating the Atlanta Falcons in overtime. Now, you know, the Patriots were favored to win. I turned it on at halftime. At halftime, the Patriots were down 24-3 and came back to tie the game in overtime. Now, there's lots of things to think about. No team has ever come back from a 21-point deficit to win the Super Bowl. No team has ever come back from more than 11-point deficit in the second half to win the Super Bowl. Are you with me? Secondly, they went in overtime. There's never been an overtime game in the history of the Super Bowl. And in the same game, there was 31 records broke in one game. 31 records broke in one game. In other words, in 50 years of football, all the records there are in football, 31 of them were broke in one game. What's the chances? And the last thing is Tom Brady was suspended for four games in the same season. It's kind of funny that the commissioner who suspended him had to hand them a championship trophy. <laughs> Lastly, Tom Brady became the first quarterback to win five Super Bowls in the history of football. On June 24, 2016, England voted to leave the European Union. Now, listen, all the things I'm sharing with you right now, I'm not saying they should have, they shouldn't have. I like the Patriots, I don't. You know, I, I, I wish the Cubs would win. I, you know, I, you understand, this has nothing to do with what I want to happen. I'm saying, is it odd that in 12 months, all these things happen? There was not a single prediction that England would leave the EU. Not one person predicted it. Probably why they came out. A lot of people say that the reason why they came out is because the people who wanted... To one of them voted in, most of them didn't come and vote because nobody predicted that they would need their votes. And they come out of the EU. Donald Trump became president of the United States, de defeating 15 other Republican candidates for the nomination. He went on to beat Hillary Clinton in the final race. This is, there was not a single straw poll that predicted that Trump would win. Not, not one, not even Fox News who was pro-Trump. The day of the election, he was down as much as 12 points in the polls. No candidate, no presidential candidate has ever come back from a 12-point deficit, ever. Trump won 3,084 of, 3, of, 3, of 3,140 counties. Hillary won 57 counties. It's not a commentary on who I voted for. I'm simply saying, can you see the signs of the times? What are they? Acceleration. Remember? I don't. <laughs> Unusual occurrences. Things that never happen occur against ridiculous odds. Supernatural interventions. The way things come about make no earthly sense. In 2017, are you bored? No. In 2017, 2017 marks the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. 
1517, Luther nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the All Saints Church in Wimberg, Germany. In 2016, the year before the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation, Pope Francis declared that Catholics and Protestants are one church in Christ, ending 499 years of division. I went to see the Pope not because I wanted to, but because he invited me. He invited me and 39 other pastors to meet with him. We were not the only group of pastors who met with the Pope. He met with several other pastors before us and after us. Why? Because when Pope Francis was commissioned to be the Pope, something happened to him, and he felt like the Protestant-Catholic division should be gone. He sat with us, and with tears running down his eyes, he said he asked us to forgive him for the Catholic atrocities against the Protestants. And of course, you could imagine that we did the same. Something is happening. We're living in Kairos moments, not just Kronos moments. Lazarus was dead four days before Jesus raised him from the dead, and he stayed two days longer when he found out he was sick to make sure he was dead. (laughs) Unusual occurrences. I have two things I want to share with you that I believe are global prophecies. The first one is that America and Russia will make peace and work together for the benefit of the world. Some of you think, well, that's impossible. Well, remember, the Japanese and Americans were enemies. And now I'd like to suggest that we are best of friends. We build automotive plants in each other's countries. We work together for the good And I'd like to propose that two superpowers for the first time in history will become friends and help the world. Well, you think Putin, you think President Trump, I'm not making any predictions or I'm not saying anything about the character of anybody, nor am I saying anything against the character of anybody. Listen, if God says Nebuchadnezzar is my servant, then I think he thinks differently than we. So having worked in the political world for six years, I stopped making judgments about people's character. I also don't decide what I think about people through the media. I've learned. I've learned that God doesn't think like I do and that God's not an American. I'm learning. My wife has lived with me through me being a a very ultra-conservative political person to being a kingdom person, and my loyalty belongs to the kingdom. And I've noticed that when God says, anoint this man as leader, president, mayor, prime minister, and I've had the privilege of being in many of those rooms, I don't ask, but he's a, oh, she's a, I just do what I'm told. That's what I'm told, and I figured out that if God loves Nebuchadnezzar, if God loves Pharaoh, if God loves Cyrus, none of these men serve God. Then, and if he anointed them as leaders, then certainly I can work it out myself. And I've been in my room many times trying to figure out what I just did. (laughs) My wife can tell you that's absolutely true. But how many understand if God says he's going to make peace between two superpowers, and by the way, I'd like to propose to you that it's going to be a season of peace. <laughs> now, I understand that several people 
that will listen to this, probably not so many in this room, will say, oh, when they say peace and safety, calamity will come upon them suddenly. I understand that if your eschatology is there'll be wars and rumors of wars, and then when things get better, you're like, oh, calamity's gonna come on them you know, immediately. Like, you don't have, there's not much room between there'll be wars and rumors of war, and then when you say peace, calamity will come upon them suddenly. Some people, that's your eschatology. Like, you have like, you have like four seconds to live in some kind of happiness. <laughs> but I love Isaiah too. Yes, that in the last days, last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will become chief of the mountains. And people will stream to it. And they'll say, let's go to the house of the Lord. He'll teach us his ways and we'll walk in his paths. For, for out of Jerusalem, the law will come out of Jerusalem. I'm going to finish. I'm going to, don't have it all memorized yet. I got the rest of the Bible memorized. I just want you to not be disappointed in me. <laughs> and many people, verse 3, and many people will come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us concerning his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge, speaking of God. He will judge between the nations. He will render decisions between many people. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Listen to this. A nation will not lift up the sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. When is that? In the last days. People are like, well, that's in the millennium. I'm sorry, I'm not that smart. It says, in the last days. Someone told me that we were living in the last days. So I thought we ought to just share a little good news. That in the last days, God's going to judge between nations, and they're, gonna, like, they're not going like, to be... The weapon plants are going to be turned into manufacturing plants. That's the way I would read that. And never again will they learn war. So that's what I think. And I, if I'm wrong, then I'll be the happiest person the beast ever ate. I don't know about you, but a lot of people have been miserable way before the tribulation. It's like, we, need, we spent the last 200 years preparing for the tribulation. We might as well have just had one. Number two, my other prediction is that Russia will join America in being a big brother to Israel. Now I want to speak to you. Esther 4.13, most quoted verses in the book of Esther, you probably already are anticipating the verse I'm about to read. Then Mordecai, then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, the word time is kairos, not chronos. If you remain silent in the kairos, did you hear me? God's decreed a kairos, not a chronos. If you remain silent in the Kairos, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. And you and your father's house will perish. God says, I've decreed a Kairos, but if you may remain Cyrus, silent in the Kairos, I'll find somebody else because Kairos means it has to happen. God's decreed it. And God goes, listen, 
in the time of favor, you're the person of favor. But if you don't respond to favor, I'll put favor on someone else. Here's the last part, and this is the one, this is probably what you thought I'd read. Who knows whether you've obtained royalty for such a time as this. I love that he asked it as a question. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe you've became a royal priesthood for a time like this. It's possible. I believe that God's doing something today that he's never done in the history of the world. Well, that's a big decree. What if I'm right? I love how we start at the service. It's time to get your hopes up. God's breaking generations of poverty. Maybe you're poor. Maybe your mother was poor. Your father was poor. Your grandfather was poor. Your great-grandfather was poor. And you're like, you know, we're going to work our way out of this. Listen, that's noble. You should. But what if it happens immediately? God's healing sicknesses that the doctor said you're going to have to live with. We, we, can, we can navigate the symptoms for you. We'll help you with the symptoms. But, you know, this is not curable. And what if it is? I've shared the story before, but I'm really excited about the story still. About, I think it's around 9, 10, maybe 11 months ago, Kathy and I were laying in bed at night. It was about 1 o'clock in the morning. We were talking. Now, that's not our norm. People are like, oh, you're so sweet. You and Kathy talk. No, I talk, but she usually falls asleep. <laughs> Many times I'm talking, I hear, <clears throat> okay, that was a good self-talk right there. Talk myself right into a good mood. But this time she happened to stay awake and we were talking. It was like one o'clock in the morning. And we were just talking about our future and our kids and our grandkids and leaving an inheritance and just this whole thing that we talk about often. And we were just talking about our personal lives and how we wanted to have an impact on generations to come. And I said, wouldn't it be awesome if God paid off our house? We owe half a million dollars on our house. She said, well, that'd be good. I go, why don't we just grab hands and pray right now? She'll tell you, there was no stars. There was no lightning. There was no voice from the heavens. There was no angels that flew over us. We prayed a simple prayer like we've done hundreds of times about different things over our lives. Typically, we're praying about a problem. But here, we're praying that God would pay off our house. Now, we've been working, she can tell you, for four years, doubling our payments, tripling our payments, any extra money we get, we've been putting it towards our house. And we really have a passion to pay off our house. Six weeks later, we're in a conference. A man walks up for prayer. I think for prayer. There's 30 people in front of him. We pray for everybody in front of him. He's the last guy. I said, how can I pray for you? He said, you can't pray for me. I'm here to pay off your house. Now, to be clear, every preacher in this room has been promised things that haven't happened. I'm not trying to create hopelessness, but I'm like, I have uh, reserved hope. And I said, oh, that's great, thank you. He said, no, you don't think I have the money, do you? I said, I have no idea. He said, here's my boat, I just bought it. See, paid in full. He had a picture of a boat, but he had paid in full, 600 and something thousand dollars. So that's awesome. He said, yeah, I had to take it back. I said, why? He said, I had a dream. God told me I couldn't have a boat until I paid off your house. I said, I owe a lot of money. He goes, you don't, have, you don't owe more than three million, do you? I said, no. 
Anyway, and Kathy was a part of this, she'll remember. I tried to, I tell him, I said, you need to go back and talk to your pastor. And by the way, you pay off my house, we aren't going to be friends. Because sometimes people are buying you, and I don't want to be bought at any price. I said, we're not going to be friends, like we're not going to be Facebook buddies, we're not going to be anything. He said, no, I, I, I don't care if we're friends or not, I just want my boat. <laughs> he told us, I want the boat. I held him off for three days. I wouldn't let him pay for my house off. I'm dead serious. I said, listen, you know, I didn't want him to pay it off and then be sorry later. So I'm like, hey, you need to talk to your pastor, da-da-da. He's like, I already talked to God. God knows more than my pastor. I'm like, just, okay, whatever. Three days later, he pays off my house. Two days later, he sends us a picture of another boat. He said, I got it. Here's the text. Picture of the boat on text. I got a better boat. God said I can have any boat I wanted after I paid off your house. So this is the boat I got. That's a good word, Sam. Hey, what if that wasn't just for me? I mean, what if God doesn't like me more than he likes you? Or maybe he likes me just a little more than he likes you. <laughs> I mean, what if the favor isn't on a person? Follow me for a minute. Here's, I, I'm a little bit over. What if the favor's not on a person? What if it's on a time? Are you with me? What I'm getting at is, I don't think the Kairos is on a person. I think it's on a time. That's why it affected the Cavaliers. That's why it affected the Cubs. Are you with me? That's why it affected the Patriots. That's why it affected Brexit. That's why it affected Trump. I'm saying you're in a time of accelerated favor. So what would happen if you stepped in to accelerated favor? What if it's the time and it's not the person? What if God paid off my house because it's the time and it's not the person? I want to propose to you that it's not the time, it's not the person. Oh, did I say it right? It's not the person, it's the time. That you're in Kairos time. Now, how long is this time going to last? I don't know. Sometimes these times last a year. Sometimes they last months. Sometimes they last days. Sometimes they last, if you look at Israel's history, sometimes they will last 40 years. I'm simply saying, well, it's time you should do what the season requires. And that is, require of God, ask, say, that's wrong, ask of God things you've never even hoped for. It's time to get your hopes up. It's time to get your hopes, everybody, let's do this with your hand. It's time to get your hopes up. Lord, I pray right now in Jesus' name, I pray for people watching by Bethel TV. I pray for people who hear this in a podcast. I pray for people in the overflow room, everybody in this room. I pray that it would be a Kairos moment, not just for a people, but for the time. And that we would be like the sons of Issachar, that we would step in to the right season at the right time. And we would say to you, God, this is a time of miracles, so this is the ones I'd like to have. I'd like to have this. I'd like to have my son back. I'd like to have my daughters come home. I'd like to have my kids off of drugs. I'd like to have this poverty broken. I'd like to have this business debt taped off. I'd like to have my body well. I'd like to have, these are the things you said. You said, in the, in the latter days, ask for rain in the latter days. Let it rain miracles in the latter days. And everybody said, I received that for myself. Amen. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Sermon of the Week. Be sure to visit Bethel.tv for other exciting new content from Bethel Church.